It's graduation day at the Southbank Centre in London today, Wednesday the 5th of September. Uh, crowds of UCL international students are milling around in gowns and mortarboards. For some, the studies are over and the search for work, if it hasn't begun already, gets underway. In this podcast recorded in the members' bar at the Southbank Centre, I talked to musicologist Hannah Chan-Hartley about her experiences as an academic making the shift from academia to marketing and communications in the arts and the thing that really brought her attention to me in the first place, her delightful visual listening guides. Be warned, this podcast is a long one. It is a stunning 66 minutes long, but I'm keeping it all in unedited because, frankly, it was a conversation I wanted to have for months uh, and it was also enormous fun too. Uh, I found it really, really interesting. London, actually on a, a bit of a vacation, a working vacation. Um, I've been recently proming a lot, prommed all last weekend. And um, what did you what did you see? I saw the Berlin Phil twice, and I saw the BBC Symphony Orchestra and uh, the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And then yesterday I went to the Tango Proms. Uh, I've heard, uh, and I've also written about the fact that quite a lot of people are very excited about the Berlin Phil concerts, almost ridiculously excited. <laughs> Obviously, they're very good. What was the experience like in the hall? I heard big cheers at the end of the Yeah, the yeah. Um, well, I think they sounded great. I, I had my highlights. I would say the uh, Luciano. No, did they play the Barrio? No, I don't think that. I don't think they did. No, sorry. What it was? I th- oh, it was the Schmidt Symphony that was a revelation to me because I did not the fourth symphony that they performed. I did not know that work, so I really enjoyed that. And um, what was yeah. your lasting impression of the Schmidt then? Because I haven't heard that bit yet. I haven't heard that symphony yet. Um, it reminds one of Mahler. It's it's almost like a more succinct. Version of some Mahler symphonies, a lot of the tonal, a lot of the tonal palette of of, of Mahler, the colors, the um, big climaxes, but also the chamber music um, uh, effects of the intimacy of the orchestra parts um, together, and uh, yeah, actually, it's it's quite remarkable. And um, what about uh, what about Beethoven Seven? What did you make of Beethoven Seven? That was in the second Berlin. Yeah, was, I hope I haven't made se- a mistake. No, no, you, 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 know, you were correct. It was in the second one. I'm trying to Because rem- I thought it was quite fast. I thought it was it quite swift. It was very swift. fast. And he also, and I don't know if this is common practice, but he also um, basically divided the piece into two parts. His first and second movement. The second movement basically started almost right after the first movement. And the, and the funeral march uh, was very fast. Yes. And yes. then he took some time between the second and third movements, and then the third and fourth movements were kind of paired as a, as a group. So... Uh, I yeah. just remember when I heard it on the radio because I, I do I tend yeah. not to go to the hall because I generally don't like other people. But um, I was struck by how the the crowd was almost whipped up into a frenzy. So come the end of the the Beethoven, which is very fast and very taut, um, people were just going mad. And I don't know whether that was just a mix for the radio or whether that was how you record it. In the hall. I don't pers- I don't think I was whipped up into a frenzy. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that, that, no, I'm that's, sure you were. <laughs> I, I, I think that was... Okay, so maybe yeah, it's a radio thing. Maybe it was a radio thing. Um, to me, I, I think I was most impressed with the Strauss, um, the tr- Death and Transfiguration, because yes, oftentimes yes. I find orchestras don't play those works with enough drama. Um, I don't know why that is, but... 
I feel like they went over the top with this, and I, I think it was appropriate for, my for the tone. My assumption with Strauss is that a lot of orchestras probably maybe unwittingly approaching with a sense of trepidation because it's a it's lot very hard. <laughs> a lot of expectation with Strauss yeah. uh, because it's got to be uh, for me it's got to it's got to really move you know it's, yes yeah. it's kind of if Mahler is quite low down under the surface I kind of know what I mean I mean not be articulating it very well but if that's how Mahler is then then Strauss is closer to the surface and has to be sort of I get it, almost yes. like a puppy dog type thing yes it has to be in your face yes. a little bit more okay there we are and I feel, yeah sick. and I feel like um, a lot of orchestras don't put it in your face and I think they need to yes um, so that that whole drama uh, plays out accordingly so um, yeah. are you you have spent a lot of time in Canada are you actually Canadian I am Canadian okay I figured that I was right about that because of the way you say about do I say a boot? Yes. Oh, yes, oh no. Is that a bad thing to say to a Canadian? I don't know. No, but I don't... I guess I don't hear a boot. I no, say, no, I, think I mean, it's not that strong. I wouldn't say that it's a boot. I will say a, um, okay, on occasion. Uh, what else do I say that is... There are some words that are that are Canadian. But so. I think that that's a good thing, because I'm often mistaking people from uh, New Zealand as being Australian. But I don't think that I would ever have mistaken a Canadian as being American, mm. and I think that the the, the sign point, uh, the sign point, the signpost even, is uh, the word about. So it's a good thing. It's yeah. not a criticism. Well, um, so <laughs> I think I've saved that. Yeah. Uh, what is it that you do? What do you call yourself? Because I struggle to know what to call mm. myself. What do you call yourself? I would call myself a public musicologist a public musicologist yes and um, as opposed to someone a musicologist who works um, in the academy for the most part uh, that I see myself I've, I've not held an academic position um, I have experience teaching in the academy as a teaching assistant certainly while I was in graduate school but uh, but my career so far has been within um, an orchestral institution and working um, and other jobs I've had actually have been with other arts organizations. So I haven't really worked in the academy but I... When I you say the academy who do you, what academy? The university essentially. Oh, see. Academia. Okay, academia. Okay, academia. Yeah. I you broadly broadly I, speaking academia, okay. yeah. Working right. as a professor. You've, yeah. So you've worked as a professor and I, taught? I've, I've taught. I haven't worked as a professor. Right. Um, yeah. For those of us who don't know, and I sort of half know, um, because I did I did study at university, <laughs> but just so that I've got the definition correct, what exactly is musicology, please? Very simply, musicology is the study of music. <laughs> okay. Okay. Going to need a bit more than that. <laughs> but it's 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 a very broad. I think um, it's now encompassing everything from uh, music. Analysis, which uh, touches on, um, I guess, more philosophical topics like music aesthetics, uh, even maybe music criticism, um, to the study of uh, the history of music, the history of the um, composers who wrote, who created the music, uh, to the context in which that music was performed. It also now includes um, reception history performance history uh, I think there's a lot more discussion now um, to these days of talking about music in terms of um, gender uh, and diversity uh, it's certainly in the performance context that's a big topic right now and I and funnily enough I feel like this area 
is after my time when I was a student, but I would say a lot of the the um, people going into graduate school now are very conscious about programming in, in public institutions, uh, women composers, uh, or gender diversity in, in being reflected in, in the music performed. And well, might that suggest that musicology or the various subdisciplines of musicology have finally found uh, sense of their purpose? So when I think of cognitive, I think of oh, psychological musicology. I'm not sure that I've got that right, but essentially the effect, the emotional effect of music on on the brain, for example, mm. and actually how those studies are now realised in uh, using music to help people with dementia or, or various other therapies. That's what I mean. That's why I'm asking whether I wonder whether musicology has. The study of it has gained a wider purpose now. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Is that something we need to come back to? I feel as maybe. I, I think I think I have to think about that. Okay. Yes. I realise yeah. I've asked an academic a really challenging question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have my f- thoughts on that, but I don't okay. want to. I don't okay. want to Shall talk we park about those thoughts yes. and then <laughs> yeah. to revisit them. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you. You were a musician, and then yes. when you went to university, you decided to specialise in musicology. Um, for okay, so I st- I did my undergrad in violin performance, and um, I did this in, in Canada at McGill. And while I was there in the summers, I actually went. I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, and I wanted to explore what it was like to work for an arts organization and actually worked um, for several summers at the Honins International uh, Piano Competition in Calgary and at the end of my undergraduate degree I was kind of at a crossroads did I want to do arts administration did I want to keep playing and um, I decided to put off arts administration because I still wanted to play but I was curious about exploring musicology as a as a future uh, career I was just I was always interested in history at school and so um turned out I for fun I guess at the moment I was thinking what does Oxford and Cambridge have and Oxford had a master's of philosophy a two-year master's of philosophy in musicology and performance and I thought well see if I um, apply and see what happens and I and I got in and it was either between um, continuing with the master's of performance in violin performance at McGill or, or going to Oxford and uh, since Did I got turn in, Oxford down no, <laughs> <laughs> because they gave me some money. Yes, you know. Oh, I see. I thought you were leading to. No, I decided not to go there. No, no, no. He wants to go no. Okay, fine. And uh, so, so there, I would say I would I got a lot of my musicology training because um, later on I decided to continue with uh, musicology, and but I went to an American institution. I went to the University of Illinois, and um, but the education I got at Oxford very much shaped what I was doing at University of Illinois and I, I went full on academic at the University of Illinois I did a PhD um, but I still played I played uh, as a violinist in a professional chamber orchestra throughout the time I was there so. um, how did you how did you experience the shift from going from the academic world to working because yeah, I mean you did end up working in arts yeah. uh, you worked for an orchestra yes, yeah. how did you find the the shift from academic study to Working in a slightly more commercially a commercial environment, and I, you know, I'm thinking in terms of ticket sales and thinking about audiences right. and that kind of thing. Um, because there is a difference in the use I of language did, and yes. difference in approach. 
I did. Uh, let me see. How would I? There was definitely a shift. I would say I was open to it, so I didn't find it um, jarring. I felt I learned a lot from uh, um, from observing this, but partly because, like, from my as a researcher, I've been interested in looking at um, the development of institutions like the orchestra and the opera house. And you can only this is from a historical perspective. So you can only get so much information from archives about how an organization's run. And so when you're really in in it, um, you are seeing things that you know you wouldn't necessarily find in in the history documents. And so uh, so I think for me it was actually really fascinating. Um, I was a member of the marketing team. I was communications because I, I was the editor of the program books, but I was a member of the marketing team and. Um, not everybody on the team had the music background that I had. And so in many ways, um, they were my audience when it came to uh, editing the program notes to, um, you know, I one of my many responsibilities was to proofread uh, the copy of the marketing copy for for uh, concerts and that kind of thing. And, and, and they wanted me to actually... Kind of finesse or or provide some rigor to it if if possible. Um, uh, but yeah, I had to think di- a little bit differently about how to communicate about the art form. Um, See, my assumption yeah. is is that act- as an academic, I'm going to make a sweeping generalisation, okay. for which I'm apologising in <laughs> advance. But that as an academic, you are um, as I am driven by detail and and avoid sweeping generalisations and and sort of uh, if you like marketing nonsense. Um, because it's all about detailed yes. statements, and actually, when it comes to selling something, perhaps those detailed statements are counterproductive. That's, and so I'm wondering whether there's a tension there for for somebody like you. Um, there is a bit in the sense that I feel like there may not be opportunities to go into the level of nuance that may be needed to describe the music. Um, there are times when. You know, if, you, if there's a program and, and you have to select a work to highlight, I wouldn't necessarily select that particular work. Um, another, I, I'm just thinking of examples like titles of concert programs. I think a lot of orchestras will choose, often choose uh, one one piece that they highlight, and it might be the concerto. But you know, like you you know that the as as somebody who um, knows more about the art form, I suppose I would choose the, or- the, the symphony as, yes, the, as yes, the highlight. Yeah. So things like that, I think, uh, yeah, and like still kind of bother me. Um, right. But then you start to realize that um, the audiences respond to different, like to, to the titles. So we've had, uh, in my experience, there were instances where we might put the symphony down. It might be Sibelius Symphony 5, um, which would be the core to me, the core work of that program. And nobody would buy, or not that nobody would buy tickets, but not as many people would buy tickets until, like, you know, we would decide last minute, maybe, or a few weeks before the performance, let's change the title to, Be- uh, to Beethoven Emperor Concerto and see what happens. And invariably, like, ticket sales just go up. Really? Yes, it's, it's quite because dramatic. It, so that's about the, is that about the, the work, or is that about the composer? It is often a. Um, or indeed, is it both? It could be both. I think Beethoven piano concerti, for some reason, can make anything sell. I'm <laughs> Sorry, no, you didn't I mean, say that in order to make me laugh. But it <laughs> made me laugh. 
No, but we had a we had a concert, a fantastic series of um, uh, Nielsen uh, the, or the. I, should I mention the Toronto Symphony Orchestra? Yeah, yeah. yeah the Toronto <laughs> Symphony Orchestra. Um, uh, Toronto Symphony Orchestra had a, 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 not really a festival, but a series in which um, they performed three of Nielsen's symphonies. And it was it was conducted by Thomas Dousgaard, and it was uh, con- um, paired, they were each paired with Beethoven piano concertos with uh, Jan Leschetsky. And I... Initially, um, I think those concerts had been titled the Nielsen Symphony, like each of the Nielsen okay. Symphony's titles, and then they were later changed to um, you, Beethoven Piano Concerti, and and they and sold they out, sold, yeah, and they sold okay. out actually all of That's them. That's so, interesting, yeah. Because for me, for me, when I see Beethoven on the program, and specifically Beethoven Piano Concertos, which is probably why I laughed, I just sort of think. Oh, God, another Beethoven piano concerto, really? Uh, whereas if I see something that I'm sort of half aware of, then I'll go, oh, well, that's interesting. So, so the programme for me, and I realise that I'm unusual, I'm not typical, um, uh, the programme has to be ever so slightly unusual. It has to challenge yes, me in a way yeah, in yeah. order to, to hook me in. But clearly the masses, the people who, who are paying the ticket, paying for the tickets uh, and therefore supporting the orchestra, need to be encouraged more yeah and well and the interesting thing is i mean they they do stay you know there could be the yeah, it's not like there's a mass exodus yeah they didn't they didn't leave right after the i mean it was a typical fra- framing of the program where the concerto happened before intermission and then the symphony afterwards um but they all they, they stayed all so so that is you know it's not like they just came for the, for the concerto so, so in answer to the question, there is a shift. There is a shift, yes. But it's actually a positive experience. You don't feel as though a little bit of your 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 sort of academic background, your academic rigor, has been has been chipped away at by having to channel all of that information into I, marketing copy. I don't think so, because but I think it was because I was offered the opportunity to weigh in. I know I'm aware that not many orchestras would hire somebody with my background. I mean, why 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 would they not? I think there are preconceptions of what an academic but is are about. There? Are there really? <laughs> what what are the preconceptions about an academic? Am I making you feel uncomfortable? No, I, I'm just thinking. I mean, um, that we can't there. They are experts, but that they couldn't, they can't translate for an audience that is not them or people okay. like them. And I think, I think that's not true. I, I there was something I read recently by um, a an executive director of an American orchestra who was talking about content marketing is key, and I was all for her discussion on this until I came until I looked further down into her article and noticed that she says musicologists shouldn't be in charge of this content. Why and not? I was like, why not? I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I'm basically yeah, colluding. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I said, <laughs> and I didn't have a conversation, you know, with her about this online or anything, but uh, but I saw it and I said, no, I think we are perfectly able to adapt yes. um, as long as we know what audience, <laughs> audience we're the, targeting. Was the assumption in the article that uh, experts risk alienating the audience with their details. I think so. I think so. And that we are, um, yeah, we're one of the elite or something like that and in, in, in an art form that's already perceived as elitist, that we're just adding, you know, having that expertise is just adding to is there, that Is there an element perception. of it that you, I'm not trying to lead you anywhere, but yeah. I'm, is there an element of what she says 
that you perhaps might see in parts of the classical music world? Because I think I do, you see. That's, that's what I'm asking. I'm wondering um, whether I'm wrong. I think so, but I'm not sure. I wonder if I've actually encountered it so strongly. But right. maybe I'm different. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I, well, and I, and maybe I'm a, actually you're not the person to judge because of your expertise, and that's not, that's not yeah, I, yeah. Maybe you maybe you don't experience it. It's odd. the reason I ask is because um, I I bow in the presence of a musicologist because I just think <laughs> you've done a lot more study than I did, and also I've got a book on musicology written by Joseph Kerman. Um, it's got a pink cover on it, and I remember being given that to read at the beginning of my first year of mm. university, and everybody else around me was going, well, I've read the first chapter, I don't understand what the hell is going on about. And, and it was really, I remember in my first year, it was, this is phenomenally difficult to understand what you're going on about. Yeah. Uh, now when I read it, I understand all of it. So there, there was something quite, uh, I remember it being impenetrable, but what I'm basically trying to illustrate is that I consider you to be more of an expert in the subject than I am. I am... Uh, uh, a, a music lover and a fan, if you like, and someone who loves the marketing business and a content mm-hmm. creator. Uh, but from my stance, writing a blog and producing a podcast, I do see people, certainly on Twitter, who who project an air of um, expertise, superiority, if you like, and they are their armour is their knowledge, and I see yes. that. I see that demonstrated in what they say and how they say it and the way they interact with people and the kind of the kind of headlines that are yes, written yes. and so and I find that as someone who understands the genre I find that personally alienating so I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you but I'm just wondering how you respond to that I, I have a question for you um, what what kind of topics are or could you give me an example of what these people are saying that make you feel alienated. I'm I a feel, curious. I, 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 have, I, have my I feel own, like I'm complaining about the police now. <laughs> I, have, I have my own opinion about Okay, so yeah. one, one really recent one that's still quite live for me is a headline in a publication. Let's just say that, written sure. by a journalist. Uh, and actually, in fairness, he may not have written the headline. It may be the sub-editor who did it. Uh, but if they have a budget for a sub-editor, I don't know... Um, uh, was something like the Budapest Festival Orchestra is um, makes every so essentially is so good that it makes every other orchestra look routine and oafish. Oh, I think I saw that. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Now, now that when I see that, big, bearing in mind that, that social media is a medium which will always provoke an emotional response in everybody who uses it, and, you yeah. know, it does. That's how it works. Um, I read that and thought, oh, you, why would you sneer like that? Why would you even say that? That's just a stupid thing to say, really annoying. And I see uh, other examples of that in, in what is a dwindling classical music press. And that, and that sort of gets me quite worked up because I think, well, you don't really represent me. You're certainly not appealing to my yeah. better side, and you don't represent me. And I don't really understand how you're helping. Yeah. Um, you know, in the wider context of let's get more people into the console. That's right. does that answer your question? Yeah, I can't really yeah. even remember what your question was. But just I asked you for an example. Um, I'm just thinking from so you were asking me about the shift from ac- academia to the orchestra, yeah. and I would say what I think I have interesting perceptions now, looking from having worked in an orchestra for about for over five years, and. Um, 
I I'm just thinking of an example. I've recently seen a lot of Twitter discussion by musicologists about um, weighing in on orchestral programming. They're they're now very observant. I don't know if they were before, but now I feel like they're much more observant about the kind of programming that orchestras are doing. Um, a lot of them are saying, "Where are the women composers?" Yes. Yeah. Um, the lack of diversity of musicians on stage, but also, uh, yeah. The, they're challenging conventions. They're, they're challenging that, but what I find, I feel like I'm getting some of that, um, how do you say it? I Maybe high horse. Claws, yeah, like a little bit. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, about um, these institutions who, yes, these are issues that we, you know, these orchestral institutions need to address, and especially now. But it's way. But if you do not understand how an orchestra works, then you don't understand how complex it is to yes. make those changes. And um, yes, changes could be made, you know, immediately if you want to just make make an effort to to make the changes. But I think um, this is where the selling tickets issue come comes in because orchestras, even though some of them are wholly public funded or ha are partly publicly funded uh, still have to think about making making ends meet through ticket sales and programming things that the audience doesn't know about um, all the time or not all the time but frequently is is going to cause some issues with with ticket sales and I think there's a certain element of I, I feel like maybe musicologists I don't know whether it's a function of being in the ivory tower, and I think it is an ivory tower, and I, and there is a benefit to the, to that, to that being to studying music in that setting. Um, but I think what happens is that you start to think of music as divorced from commercial uh, ends, okay. and and it's never been like okay. the, the performance of music has always. Um, there's always been, been a there's a commercial element, whether it be a sponsor, whether it could be a, a, a court patron, but still, there's still some there's money um, involved in, in producing. That's why music. Mozart was employed to do what he was doing <laughs> yeah, yeah. in order to write music that was popular. Yeah. Otherwise, if it wasn't popular, he wouldn't have had a job. Yeah, and but composers very simply. Yeah, yeah, and composers are you know need to earn a living. Everyone needs to earn a living. So, so do I need to adjust my thinking? That's what I'm. That was a, that's basically about musicologists. You. Well, not necessarily oh, yeah. about no, no, no. I think all musicologists are great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, way, so that we can carry on with the rest yeah. of the interview. Uh, no, I'm just wondering whether uh, my irritation with those those sort of weird catty comments, and there are catty comments. Mm -hmm. I just wonder whether whether that needs to change, or whether whether you think my attitude needs to shift. There's part of me that I feel like I don't. I, I kind of ignore when those things come out. Like I, I try not to be bothered right, too okay. much by it. I feel like, is it really <laughs> worth investing my energies in in dealing in dealing with this? This is a really valuable piece of advice. Thank you very so much. it's like, is yeah. it is okay. it valuable? Let yeah. it go, John. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I feel like I th maybe that line was actually meant to be clickbait. And I feel yes. is yeah. it really is it really worth investing my energies arguing this? Yeah. And I see lots of people. Um, try to contend with with these issues on on social media. I'm like, I and I tried. There was one time I was trying to 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 uh, have a conversation about this topic. And I just said, this takes way too much time. First of all, I have to plan it all out so it all fits within the character limit. And second, like, and it Which just would be anathema to an academic. I, I, exactly. So I just like you know what? Come on. I just, I just yeah. I I I think for me, I 
I've just decided to be okay. That's I don't want to invest in my energies too much in debating that on social media. And I, think, I just fe- I just yeah. fear that the that the the style of conversation is is perpetuating uh, the existence of a bubble. And I think of the people who it sort of who, reinforce them. Yeah, 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 sort of. Yeah, yeah it's re- yeah. it's a reinforced boundary. And even you know, I have a music degree. I play the clarinet. It's not like I, I come to this completely fresh. But I still look at uh, some of the people who write about the subject and earn their money writing about the subject and think, is that what you're going to say? I mean, really? Is that your angle? And I wonder whether that, whether I just need to let that go. I'm sort of wondering now that I probably do. I would say use your... Your judgment, your best judgment. If it's, yeah. I realise this is not therapy. (laughs) Part of it, I think, yes, I think you can, one can, should just let it go. Others, I think it just depends on where you want to invest your energy. So what is the, do you, what is the ideal mix of expertise and irreverence? And yeah, how do we, how do we go about talking about it? Because you, I'm going to push you on that one. You must surely have a view on that. Not that you haven't had a view on other things. Right, right. Do we need to change think, the way we talk about it? I think the expertise needs to be the foundation um, for talking about music. But it doesn't need to come to the fore in, in jargon. I understand, though, there's some, especially talking about classical music, where it, um, there are terms that have particular meanings. You have to use those terms, because otherwise you, you, you know, you kind of, like trying to describe sonata form without using exposition oh, development. I never want to lose the term sonata right, form. Right, right. I, I think it's a terribly joyous thing. But I think... Um, that doesn't exist anywhere else. Sorry. I, yeah, I, but I think there's... Lots of work can be done in, in the way that it's communicated. It's just, it's... Um, yeah. Uh, but the expertise is a grounding and not necessarily... Um, it's not a requirement. It's, it's, not, it's a grounding, but it's not a requirement. I think it would depend on the topic and what one was talking about. I think experience. I think though, somebody who has, um, somebody who has, uh, okay, say somebody who has a lot of experience listening to music, but might not have had academic training in in uh, sort of university level training, can certainly uh, speak eloquently and communicate effectively about music, but. Um, they themselves might not feel feel comfortable because they they feel they don't have the 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 underpinnings, the theoretical underpinnings to really so be that confident. Would, and that would give them confidence. I think so. Um, and just get, and maintain a certain momentum in terms. Yeah, of I think a, flu, a fluency yeah, in terms okay, of communicating yeah. the the art form. And so I think that's what it is. I mean, the 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 knowledge. Um, I don't. I wouldn't call it tools because they're not tools. No, but no, you know I'm, what I mean. I like do know what you mean. Okay. It's being able to to um, pull the threads that you need in order to, com- to to make to communicate effectively about about the art form. Um, you see, I just worry that actually, in pursuit of trying to be terribly, and maybe this was a, a BBC experience as well, but in pursuing um, the widest possible sense of inclusivity, mm. i.e., in the way that we we talk about the subject that some of that 
expertise will be downgraded, or the value attached to expertise will be downgraded, and so uh, eventually mm. it will no longer be necessary or seen as valuable, and then it will just be lost. Slightly fatalistic. Answer, <laughs> but but, but what mean? is the expertise that you feel is being lost? Terminology, study, scholarly study. Like being valued. Yes, and I wonder whether in pursuit of trying to make it accessible the value attached to scholarliness um, which won't appeal to everybody but it's still incredibly important will be lost or downgraded you are not convinced no I'm just thinking of an, ana- a, an analogy about, about this topic because I think uh, it may be applicable I'm trying to th- what is it because it was one that my husband told me and it was actually very good um, I people value expertise. I, even if they say they might not, they do value expertise. I think the analogy I would give is that, you know, somebody who played the piano at an amateur level, somebody who could tinkle on the piano, would you pay tickets? Would you buy a ticket to go see a person just tinkle on the piano? No, you want to hear somebody who is mm. at the top of their their profession who who is um yeah and so okay I in that way i think okay. that's that's kind of what i mean i think people expertise will always be valued i think it will always yeah. be valued but i think um perhaps those of us with it need to i think we need to be confident that um that it is valuable and then think about the ways in which we communicate communicate it it's almost like you've been on the radio before because you just provided a beautiful segue <laughs> to the purpose of this podcast which is um, to I just want to check that, we're, that we had recorded all of that <laughs> otherwise that would be awful uh, which is um, you when you were at Toronto you did some yes. lovely things with info, essentially infographics mm-hmm. I don't want to play it right down but essentially combining uh, infographics in order to provide a different way in to understanding your work is that essentially what your listening guides were about uh yes so so do you want me to i can align how i developed this yes Um, where did they come from where where did you have the idea why have you done this okay so uh the opportunity to do a visual listening guide came about when i was in the process of um overseeing a redesign of the toronto symphony orchestra's program books and i've always wanted to do some kind of listening guide because I've interacted with them, uh, many forms of them throughout my time as a student, as as somebody teaching um, students who are music majors and also non-majors. And uh, for me, I've always been a visual person and uh, I'm just thinking back to taking my first orchestral lit course in in undergrad. Um, One of the things that we had to do was we have to do several exams where it's essentially what they call drop the needle and um, they would play an excerpt from a work from a group of works that we had studied we were asked to identify what what excerpt what the excerpt was was it what if it was a theme what theme that was what part what movement um, oh sorry so composer work what movement in that work and what part of that movement and maybe something about why that uh, excerpt was chosen if there was a significant um, significance to Sounds it. Sounds like a nice game. I like that. Yeah, so... <laughs> I like that a lot. So, um, 
So this was this was kind of my trading end, uh, and it continued in graduate school. I took another course at a very similar um, requirements, and I actually really enjoyed it. One of the things that I did was, in order to learn the works, I would get a score, and then I would listen with the score, and then over time, you know, we. Um, kind of hone in on some of the aspects that could be asked about on the test and one of the ways that I would study is to create some kind of visual timeline and I don't have a photographic memory but I tend to memorize things quite visually and I and if I'm in an exam situation I might recall something in my mind um, because I've I've yes. created yes. it yeah. and then and drawn it and I use colors and so uh, when I was um, teaching basically music for non-majors. Uh, this is essentially a introduction to the art of listening, and it's a sort of introductory his- music history course for people with no, um, not necessarily any background in, in classical music. Uh, I came across a listening guide in the textbook, and we used Joseph Kerman's Listen. And now these are very nice charts, um, and I, thought, I found them very useful. But I was thinking, if I was to when I was in the orchestra, working for the orchestra, I was thinking, can I take that concept and make it um, more interesting to, to a public audience? So that's one side of things. The other side of things, I, I, as I was working at the orchestra, I had been going to a couple of conferences and realizing there were a number of orchestras creating apps because they felt like maybe um, an app would actually enhance the experience of going to a concert and there's something in the way that you say app that that, that and you said it twice it makes me think that you didn't believe that they could well the as i explored the app um and the, these a lot of these apps were essentially program notes in real time hmm. and and uh when i saw the content of those notes i wasn't i wasn't overly impressed i would have to say because the notes would be something like well now you hear the flute or, uh, yeah, sign, like signposts. But yeah, yeah. But and the other thing would, would be um, there was another app that I looked at the content for, and it was almost too prescriptive. It was basically getting you to. It was telling you what you, trying to describe to you what you should be hearing, what you're hearing, but in a very um, concrete way. So they'll say, oh, this sounds like. Music in a forest. Well, surely in that moment of listening, especially if you're listening for the first time, that requires more processing on the part of the listener because you've got a lot of stuff that you're... Not only are you listening to something you've not heard before, but you're having to translate words into meaning in your head at the same time. I think it sounds like... (laughs) there's a real issue right so i think those are too prescriptive so um and then there's there's been obviously a lot of conversation about is it can like is difficult to understand is the symphonic form difficult to understand how can we make it so that it's more accessible and in the visual listening guys came up because i wanted to to create something in which you can Almost teach yourself how to listen um, by giving you a map that outlines the structure of the movements of a symphonic work. So uh, one of the principal um, goals for this, and this is not a digi- in a digital version, but in, for, for print, um, is to show, for example, an entire the structure of an entire movement uh, on one page. And instead of, you know, we're, I think one of the most 
obviously the most common listening guide we know of is the program note. And I wanted to, one, use less text in the program. I want to show rather than tell. Mm -hmm. So instead of telling about Sonata Allegro form, I'm showing it in the way that it's laid out on on the page. And um, I mean, I define exposition development and recapitulation, but you can also see how those components what is Play this out. one here? This Dvorak nine. This one is here is um, Dvorak nine, the New World Symphony. Yeah, so actually, you do. It's like I was saying earlier. You you do include detail like keys. Yes. And 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 terminology yes. and um, in places you do translate yeah. the terminology and that's that's I think possibly from my perspective. I find that really appealing because it means that I'm. It makes me feel as though I'm being catered for, as well as those people who. Right. Uh, was that a deliberate choice? Yes. the um, The goal of this was the aim was for a broad audience. I felt that um, for somebody, and it kind of was borne out by some of the feedback I've gotten, where I I wanted it to be quite intuitive to figure out um, where. I, actually, the very first time I introduced it, I didn't really have a how-to page. That, there's a how-to, how-to-read-it page that I've, I've since developed. I'm sorry, can you just open the page again? Because I want to see. Because oh. I just had a... Oh, it's just beautiful. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a piece of... As images in themselves, as complete images on one page, they are all beautiful. Thank you. Um, or are you sort of... Oh yeah. Quite blasé about it. No, 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 I'm not. No, no. They are visually no. appealing. I want... That's... that's um, as a, a, a main as part of it, yeah. <laughs> um, because that makes it draws me in. Yeah, draws me into the that's detail. that's Sorry, what you were saying. Oh, so I was saying that um, I was pleased to find out there was a patron who had contacted me and asked me. He hadn't. He didn't understand what what this was in, inside these pills, and he wanted to know. And then I when I um, this is the shape of the melody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And when and this is a graphic notation um, that I developed with my graphic designer. And uh, when I explained it to him, he says, oh, I did figure it out. I said, I actually, like, he figured it out in performance because, and it was a guide for Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. And he said, I noticed, I heard the theme come back, and I saw that with the colors, the way that they're arranged, that that was the theme. And he figured, and when he paid attention to it, he, he realized it was outlining the main theme. So here was somebody with less well he didn't really know the piece but he he was able to figure out that oh the main theme comes back um but somebody with with more knowledge i'm hoping will pick up on some of the interesting details that are are involved here looks like sort of dna prints a bit yeah (laughs) that's kind of what i think um and and i've never really looked at it like that did you actually just as an aside did you do you must know about shankarian analysis yes can you tell me what Shankarian analysis is because it makes me think of that I'm sorry okay. I put you on the spot again you put me on the spot because I, yeah, because it's a different way of picking yeah, over so picking sh- over work but with, or sort of yeah, analysing it with Shankar um, the, the guiding principle is that there is a there is lev- several layers of structure and um, and this is dictated by the direction of the harmony I guess it's the I don't think I'm explaining this very well, I no, have to well, say. No, but I'm essentially, the, there, he, he, the, the analysis happens on different layers of structure. So there is the big, big structure, yes. um, basically like 151, if you're talking yes, about yes, like tonic, yeah, dom- yeah, yes. uh, something like that. And then after that, there are sub, there are many other layers down to the, to the I suppose, the very minute. Um, yes. And 
So that's essentially what it is. And this, yes, in, in that, someone's asked me this before, yeah, in the sense that this is... Because I remember doing Shankarian analysis yeah. at university and thinking, I don't understand why I'm doing this, but I seem to be doing it right, and I don't get the point. But seeing this, this yes. reminds me that actually what's happening is that the, the structure as the traditional, conventional structure, understanding that I have the structure of a piece, is sort of being change slightly yeah. yes there's a different approach to this. yeah and I think um, one of the things I did want to to kind of happen with this as I did more and more of these guides is that if you I start started with um, probably all the symphonies that are most commonly performed um, you can see you know first movement most likely in sonata allegro form uh, you can compare side by side how how it sort of evolved with with various composers or how the composer would play with the form. Um, I mean, this is Dvorak's, the, uh, this one I have here, an example this of... This is in one of your fancy programs. Yes. That's how you describe the that. fancy oh, program, that. but Brahms three. smaller. Uh, Brahms three, And what I mean, one of the, the amazing things about the symphony is that you have um, this motto theme that strikes attention because it's between F major and F minor and and then you have this this opening um, theme played by the violins and it doesn't get resolved until the end you hear the resolution of that but there is a drama being played out in the music obviously there's no um, actual story but there is a a drama within the music itself that is being played out here, and and you can see it in the way that the motives come back. Um, certainly, by the 19th century, you've got symphonic works where motives are being re- or being recalled or, or um, yeah recalled in other movements and I'm for for purpose. How, I'm struck by how actually the imagery, uh, in some senses, makes it simpler to gain access to the music, but actually you are not necessarily simplifying. Mm. the discussion you know the idea yeah. that that to a newcomer you'd say well here is the theme and actually it doesn't really get resolved until that isn't yeah. simply you, no. you're, not, you're not simplifying <laughs> it you're just saying that this this is this is how one way to, to approach yeah. it yeah that clearly was important to you yes yes right. absolutely and yeah I mean this, the Dvorak Symphony 9 um, did, also, any, did anything change in your understanding when you completed this of the works um, it depended on which ones I did, uh, especially ones that I hadn't studied deeply. I did one of, I don't have a copy of it, but I did one of Sibelius 7, which actually includes a timeline um, on the bottom because it's such an interesting, you know, it's a one-movement work. I couldn't, I had to think about laying it out on a spread because you want, I wanted to be able to show everything. So it has a timeline on the bottom and that one was interesting to do because I um, there's probably many ways to look at the way that is structured and I had to choose one that uh, would make the most sense the way that then I mean I have training in doing this analysis but the things that I'm picking out depend on like on what I'm hearing so there's a lot of listening involved when I'm doing the analysis because I'm trying to pick out the things that your ear would latch on to um, as you're experiencing the piece so I'm focusing on that because the thing is I'm limited by the space, which is a good thing because otherwise these yes. things could yeah, could yeah, be yeah. huge, could be an yeah. entire score. Um, yeah, so so I have to I have to be quite judicious about what what things I choose um, to um, come out. <laughs> did you do any Bruckner? 
I have not done Bruckner. <laughs> because <laughs> or Mahler. <laughs> but no, I was going to say, yeah. so would you, because Bruckner is, Bruckner Symphonies, a former colleague described as washing machine music. Um, Why is and, that? Well, because he just didn't, well, he was a Wagner fan, a former, former colleague. He's some, something high up in the NHS. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. But he was very dismissive of Bruckner. Uh, I feel and like Bruckner is quite polarising. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. But as a result of his comment, I then listened to, to a Bruckner symphony that I thought I liked. And then I listened to it and thought, actually, nothing really happens in this. And so I'm wondering whether that would lend itself well or whether there are some works... Maybe like Bruckner, where you just go, no, we're not going, we're not, we can't tackle that. I that's... think I, th- I would love to tackle Bruckner. Um, I think there is something in Bruckner that can be, that should be conveyed in this way. I mean, I would, I would actually like to do it. I feel like the reason why this is a personal opinion, but okay. I think the reason <laughs> why I feel um, Bruckner is polarizing is because there are not that many orchestras who play Bruckner well. And oh, I think okay. it's because um, you have to have a real understanding of the architecture of the piece and where it's going because it, it's quite repetitive in some. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking there of are this, subtle shifts. In yeah, it. subtle shifts. I mean, I'm thinking of this, the slow movement in Bruckner Seven, the one um, dedicated to Wagner. Essentially, it's gorgeous. I love that movement, but if you don't, if you don't um, pace it properly. Yes. You, it's going to be bogged down and you're going to be bored uh, by the end of it because he keeps switching these sections back and forth and more times than, than uh, you know than you would really want to hear it but he is making <laughs> I suppose but, you, but he's making these like I said subtle yeah, shifts that, yeah, yeah. that um, but somebody has to really know how to bring those out without and move it and move it along right. uh, so that you you can hear that and I think so he's challenging to play it's challenging, it's challenging to, play. to play well, and if it's not played well, actually, you're probably not going to enjoy listening. Yeah, to and it you need you need somebody, a conductor, who can see that that, that overall architecture and bring that. And so my other it. assumption is then that tackling Mahler would probably be a very rich experience because there's yeah. so much detail in Mahler. Yes, yes. Um, but Wagner possibly would be an absolute nightmare. Not necessarily. No. No. Um, because no, because I well, I'm a Wagner scholar actually, <laughs> but I uh, the reason why is because Wagner. I'm thinking of Tristan and the Ring, especially he. There is a remarkable um, sense. There is just it's ingenious in, in terms of the yes. architecture of, of of those works in particular and. Oh, to do it would be would be would be is fantastic. There, there a, oh, I'm thinking back to my sort of formative Wagner experiences, i.e., positive ones. Is there a risk that some of that that joy that one experiences when you finally get Wagner, because it, take, it yeah, takes people yes. a different amount of time, um, is there is there a possibility that 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 joy might be denied somebody by having a visual guide? And I'm thinking specifically about Wagner. I don't think so because once it's a very visceral thing. Yes, there's but I think there is I would say like method to the madness. There the visceral thing about it is is in the in the structure and the way that Wagner um, created created the the architecture I guess of these of okay. these dramas. Um, so you're saying by understanding the structure, yeah. actually, you may access the joy of it, right. the visceral quality. And I would say I appreciate it more when I go see um, a production, and if if a conductor 
you can tell if a conductor understands what's what's going on. Uh, yeah, yeah. How long do they take to make? Um, we got it down. So I, ha- uh, I it it depends. Something like this, um, the Dvorak Nine, would take about twenty hours, and some people think that's very low, <laughs> or you don't think it's very low. Uh, but not twenty hours all in one go. No, no, not at all. No. no. There is a process in which um, I do the analysis uh, and I create a series of notes and I listen to the work with a score and um, create the series of notes and I then give the notes to a graphic designer I work with um, who doesn't have a music background, a classical music background Good. at all. Good. So that's, that's great. Imp- that is important. That's actually really important. Yeah. And, um, because you provide, it gives it a, a different... It gives a sense of objectivity. I think. Yes. It gives a design yeah. that comes from an objective place. And um, he does execute, like he does execute on what I on what I want. But his his the first pass is that he's trying to fit everything on the page. And he and I will get together and we'll do listening sessions as well, so that I can guide him through the notes and he'll come up with with various ideas. Um, the first pass with him is yeah to fit everything onto the page. And then, uh, and then there's a there's a lot of back and forth through several versions, tweaking um, the layout before it comes down. Before it's sort of everything is settled, the color is the last thing to go in. Right. Um, but yeah. So do you have a process? We do have a process. Of course, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you can't the microphone in, in front of you. You're hardly going to go. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't no, have no, it. No. no. <laughs> Um, the thing that really strikes me, in addition to them being utterly gorgeous, and I really hope I can turn these away with me. You <laughs> <I> can, <guess. laughs> right? Um, is uh, when are they going to come out in a book? When are you going to publish a book? You need to publish a book. Thank publish you for book. telling me that. Okay, <laughs> you have now. Yes. I mean, surely I w- that idea has crossed yes, your mind. Yes. Yes. You could, you could put all of these works. That's into, the plan. Okay, I would love to do plan. that. There is a plan to do that. Uh, I also would love the opportunity to do a digital format for it um, but I don't I'm not it, the thing I want to retain is the uh, the idea that you can see the whole thing yeah yeah, yeah um, totally. and uh, you know the the apps that I talked to you earlier about is not the direction I'm not looking for a concert app uh, or use doing no, you want to take people away for I mean, yes I think, yeah as someone who uses my mobile phone a lot yes I want things that take me away from yeah my mobile phone, yeah really. And if, if this was to become something, um, it might be something that's more like an educational show where it would be amazing to show it on the big screen, for example, and animate it or something. Or maybe it's, it's more of an at-home thing. But I'm not, I haven't, uh, that's something I have to explore still. But the book is, yes. <laughs> that's, is that happening? That is happening? I want I'm it done. to happen. I'm, right. I, yes. You need to find people. Is that what you're we doing? might, yeah. We need to find people who will go. I mean, it just seems like a no-brainer because yes, there isn't yeah. really anything else like it. I'm telling you things that you already know. I'm not trying to <laughs> flatter you uh, over necessarily. Um, what makes you most proud about it? That's a terrible thing to ask an academic, <laughs> I know. But I'm going to press you on it. What, what makes, you, what, what makes well, you the most proud? I think... Um, I'm, I think I am amazed by the reception that the guides have gotten because, weirdly, I mean, the listening guide as a concept is not a new thing. No. And so 
to me, this seemed like a natural... I, I don't know, I, I guess maybe it's not a natural thing to have created, but um, it started as an experiment uh, to see if it worked and, and to see if people um, got it. And, 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 and I think... What do you think that they responded to then? I think they responded to the... Well, they've never seen it like this before. Um, And then it's also visually appealing. I... And those people who have... Clearly have uh, knowledge about classical music just actually enjoyed seeing Mm. what they knew (laughs) presented in a way that Mm. was different. And and maybe they got something more out of it as well. For Uh, me, it strikes me that um, it's... It, prov- it makes it accessible for those people who are visually driven and actually as much as I love classical music and I do the fact is orchestral concerts are not really very visual are they no, they're, they're, no. they're <laughs> extremely passive experiences really you just sit in a seat and look at the stage and you can't really see what's going on and actually this is this is kind of filling a gap it's not that we need to be entertained uh, right. doing things yeah. during a concert but it does fill a gap and it probably highlights that the classical music concert as a format is missing some kind of visual element could be yeah um, uh, so that, that, that was the first thing that struck me that it, that it opens things out for a lot of other people who need visual stimulation or, or need to find something visually compelling um, I'm struck just speaking to you now that actually it combines both a sense of accessibility and also doesn't dumb down and I think that for me I think that's really important I think that's quite deft what were other people saying to you um well one one uh, area one group of people that I I guess did not anticipate would be very interested in these is actually the people in visual communications and data visualization mm. so the when I would say that the moment that these got recognized, so I had been basically I had created about six guides by this point, but it, they got a lot of attention because a um, one of the our guest art the orchestra's guest artists saw it in the program book and tweeted about it, and I, he did at the time didn't have a lot of followers, but for some reason it went it went viral and at Creative Review, which is a uh, oh, publication yeah. here Hello. in London. Yes, <laughs> yes. they creative review. They they got in Hello. touch. Yeah, they because um, they're not a hard backed magazine. Yes, they they basically. got in touch with me to do an interview, and that's kind of how it got uh, launched internationally. And since then, that interview came out um, online in May of 2016. The end of May, is that right? Yes, end of May 2016. And um, since then, I've had. Uh, uh, s- several graduate students who are in MFA programs. I have one. Um, there was one from the Rhode Island College of Design who, or Rhode Island School of Design, who did a master's thesis on. She was a musician by background, but was very interested in graphic realization of music. And so she interviewed me. So I'm in her thesis. I have. Uh, there's a s- students at the University of Toronto who are looking at this from a user experience perspective. So from the c- engineering department. Um, yeah, I had I. And did that surprise I was, you? It I did mean, it surprise looks like me. It still surprised. Yes, you. because I well, I am not a graphic designer. Per, like, I don't have the skills of a graphic designer, but I am. I do love 
beautiful print, beautiful laid out things. I am. Uh, I love magazines. Yes. I put it to you that you would probably never use an unnecessary typeface, and you'd also never use more than two typefaces on a page. Yeah, I'm kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. because that's important. There are rules yes. there for a reason. Yeah, you don't and, want too much noise. Right, and I and uh, <laughs> I st- like I love looking at magazines, and in, maybe in that because of that, I've I've sort of studied. And you'd also layout. never bleed into a margin, would you? You'd respect the margin. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work with people who said, no, don't do that, because that's really messy. You should respect the margins. And they all used to take this out of me. And then I just left, and they're still there <laughs> in a huff. <laughs> um, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, so I, feel, I'm, I think I'm proud that they're, they're resonating with, with people. Good. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you? I feel as though we've covered loads of things. I don't think so. You don't think You've so? asked me some hard questions. Have though. I really? Yeah. There was one question that you parked, which I'm going to come back to. <laughs> uh, if only so that I know that I can remember the question, which was, um, are things like... Has, has the study of musicology reached a wider... Oh. Purpose. So, really, first, but my first follow-up question is: Do you understand what I'm asking? And two, have you got an answer? <laughs> so, I'm thinking specifically about, say, the way in which um, cognitive musicology, if that's a yeah, subdiscipline, I know what you're about, yes. um, that's that's now seeing it's now being realised. The extent of that study is being realised in supporting people with dementia, for example. Right. And that's that's a really important um, new development right. that I see as musicology having reached a wider purpose. Is that fair to say, or has it always? I had think a I think there is. Hmm. In some ways, it's already it, it has already happened. I would say, but. There is potential for more. Mm. Um, I think what you described is maybe a more concrete example. Because uh, it certainly has in terms of uh, gender. So the, 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 uh, you could argue that actually musicolo- the study of musicology has uncovered the uh, woeful lack of women composers right. in terms and of representation. So it's definitely done good work right. there. Yes. The, the unco- I think the uncovering has happened, but the... But the there's a lot of work to be done to, uh, I say, fill that area with more research. So, I this is this is interesting. I find, and I maybe I'm out of touch. I'm not sure, but I feel that the I mean, the academy has its own rules. You know, when you work in the academic environment, there are um, I don't know how you say this hidden things that you need to you need to fulfill you know your goals of making tenure and that kind of thing and a lot of that is you have to wear a cloak you have yeah have a staff and that kind of thing but you're but studying in the academy and like doing your research in the academy um getting grants is often dictated by like how you know your topic area and i still think that right now the um There may be not uh, people who are looking at you know funding various research projects are still looking at people are still maybe preferring uh, scholars who are studying the well-known composers already. So 
despite all this talk about you know we must have more music um, by women composers in in orchestra being performed like in orchestral institutions, uh, there's all that contextual research that still needs to be done. Maybe maybe has been done, but it's not. I guess it has to be sexy for for granting yeah, it organizations. Yes, yeah. needs to be picked up, and there yes. needs to be a hook for it. And the the professors in in each of these various aca- academic institutions need to be supportive of that. They need to be saying, "Well, why are you st- like why are you studying a composer that you know might have been performed at one time, but no longer is not currently performed?" Like, is that is that a worthwhile mm. project? Mm. I think there are a lot of big questions that need to be answered um, can we just I mean the fact that we don't hear very much um, music by women composers is a big question about canon do we need to um, dismantle the, ca- the canon of the performing repertory uh, are there is there always going to be music that um, may be studied in the academic realm but might not see the light but it's still it's valid in the academic realm but might not see the light of day uh, in the public eye, is, is, is it is it okay to do that? I, I don't know. There's a lot of questions. I think yes, the, we we've uncovered a lot of issues, but there's so many questions that need to be answered. And and uh, yeah, would suggest that part. that field of study is still very much alive. Yes. So I could return to university and pick up where I left off, yes. uh, which I think would be a good thing to do. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your. Thanks to Hannah Chan Hartley for joining me at the South Bank Centre today. Please rate, share and like Thoroughly Good Podcast on Spotify, iTunes or Audioboom. You can contact me on Twitter at thoroughlygood or email me john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me. Thank you very much for listening.